Dr. Kuntz, who was St. Benedict? <laughs> Benedict was a monk in the very early Middle Ages in Italy who founded a monastery called Monte Cassino in peninsular Italy that's not not related to Monte Carlo. And there he you know, did the things that monks do, prayed, worked. He founded the what becomes the Benedictine order that's governed by the rule of St. Benedict, which is sort of base, basic level monasticism in the West. And uh, yeah, I mean, so he's, he's in many ways, one of the, one of the major transitional figures between antiquity and, and the middle ages. So why would he be an option for modern Western libertarians? <laughs> well, libertarians don't like anybody. I mean, they just want to, you know, they can. Yeah, I, can, I was trying just... to summarize the Dreher crowd, you know, pre-2020. You know, who who is his audience, politically speaking? Yeah. You know, uh, they're resistors of all parties, probably, in some respect. I, yeah, they're they're not libertarians. They probably They probably work for the Heritage Foundation or wish they did. Probably a lot of them are converts to something that's not Protestantism as is Dreyer himself, who grew up in a small Methodist church in Louisiana, um, and I think has been trying to overcome that since then. So his, his audience are what he called in a book that I enjoyed a lot more than the Benedict option, crunchy cons. And this was supposed to be a like, you know, you like organic food, but you also like guns or you homeschool and do home birth, but you, you know, hate abortion. It was some sort of attempt at reconfiguration back in the Bush era. Hmm. People forget about forget about that. But a Benedict option is in Dreyer's own telling in the book by the title. And then this, he's, I mean, before COVID, he was traveling all over the world talking about this, is an option to reform generally Christian, certainly conservative communities in new places. He gives a couple of examples in the book. There's, I think, a Latin mass Catholic community in maybe Kansas, if I remember correctly. Um, I read the book several years ago now, so it's a little fuzzy. But the idea is that the way to preserve Western civilization, to use a euphemistic term that people like, to preserve Western civilization is to go away in some way, in some measure from mainstream society and to found a Christian community that will endure through the political or social or demographic or all kinds of collapse coming, especially in the United States. I mean, the book is in English and there's a lot more space in, in places like the U.S. to do something like this. This is a little harder to pull off in Belgium. But the basic idea is if you get away, you'll be able to survive in some way. So I got two things coming out of that. I guess the most important is how is that different from what we've been advocating? Uh, one way it's different is that I think because of a, a, a big historical omission or error or whatever in the book, the vision of what will likely happen is fundamentally off. That's that's my major problem with it. I don't have a problem with people moving. I mean, <laughs> I, if you know me, of all people, don't have a problem with someone moving away from other people. The issue is that the gap in the book is that Benedict himself, the historical Benedict, did not exist as a self-contained community. Monasticism depended on the existence of Christendom, 
which relied politically on military force to defend itself from Muslim invasion during the Middle Ages. And then even later, I mean, down to Luther's time, right? Luther has these apocalyptic visions about the Turks punishing Europe for its sins. So you need someone to do killing in a righteous cause. You need someone to defend. And Benedict wasn't trying to do that because he was not trying to be a holistic society. It was a group of celibate men devoted to prayer and study. So that, that gap means that, okay, you, you move somewhere, Kansas, whatever, it could, be a, it could be a very red, red state, which we'll talk about later. But unless you are prepared to just be an alternate society, right? An alternate polity, if need be, unless you are ready to defend yourself as well as pray and study and support yourself economically in the basic sense of that word, you're not actually ready. Like the Benedict option, as Dreyer is describing it, requires a lot more, which is why I talk so much about politics and economics and stuff like that, because you have to think holistically. And so, I mean, a lot of people that go to church every Sunday and maybe even some churches, I, I have no idea, denominational headquarters actually are somewhat aware of what could happen to specifically Christian congregations in the next 30 years. But if you're not planning to be an alternate government, you're not actually exercising the historical Benedict option, which is not the same thing as Rod Dreyer's Benedict option. Right. Okay. So my intention to, in fact, create an empire stands with you as cool, but we're going to withdraw from this idea that we can do that apart from reality. <laughs> right. So, so I can dream of being a king by, by standing firm on my dynamics with family and faith yeah. and all this, but like who my neighbor is across the street will still really matter. And if he's the Turk and going to kill me, like preparation, discipline, knowledge, real world tactics and politics, those count too, right? So it's, it's not just a matter of having the heart for the dream, uh, which is sort of the American way of looking at this. Well, you're, you're being incredibly pragmatic about this. And I, I got to say, I, I'm in agreement. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, there's the, so there's a difference between historically what Benedict did and what the circumstances of that were, and then Benedict option, capital B, capital O. The other issue that I have is that it's not like, this hasn't things like this haven't been tried in America before. The the only truly successful example of withdrawal with some modicum of long-term survival of the group as a group with its thoughts and its ways are the Mormons. There are for every group of Mormons, there are uh, hundreds if not thousands of groups and communities including the some of the antecedents of what's now the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod that tried to basically have a separate society. In the case of the, the group in Missouri that would become sort of part of the stream of what's now the Missouri Synod, they tried a theocracy, right? Effectively, the clergy were in control, especially the, the head clergyman, the bishop. So you, can, you have tons of historical examples of people trying to withdraw. Therefore, you also have tons of historical examples of what could and does go wrong. So the, the question is not to me, like, it's not a horrible question to ask. The desire is completely understandable. The desire to remain in and among mainstream society is also understandable for other reasons I can see Christians justifying. I'm not, 
I'm not at all judgmental about one way or the other. The problem is you need to use history to understand what happens to people like you, generally speaking, <laughs> regardless of what choice you make. So, okay, you want to stay around. Well, you know, if you look at the Bolshevik revolution or the Spanish civil war, if you are a practicing Christian in a militantly leftist polity, chances are your clergy most likely, and maybe you also will be killed and your religion will be suppressed. And that's easier to achieve in an urban environment where people are closer together. You want to withdraw. That's cool. That's great. You need a way of defending yourself and making money or at least sustaining yourself physically. And then in addition to that, you need to be ready for the second or third generation to get an itch to leave. Or you're going to have to figure out how to pass this on, or you're going to have to figure out how to multiply effectively in the way that the Amish and the Hutterites do, who have always been to some extent withdrawn, Hutterites much more than Amish, but they have a way of figuring out, okay, what do I do with the energy of a 23-year-old young man who's never known anything else and therefore is prone to criticize everything about this community? What do I do with that? And so that's, that's why history is so valuable, because it really helps you very practically. Like, so we could just get on here and give you like 10 things to do this week to be a better whatever. The reason we don't do that is because it's really kind of, it gets extremely shallow if I just tell you things I think are a good idea. If we look at, we're going to be looking at the history of red states and the term, the concept, why it arose. The reason to do that is because I can actually, I don't have to repeat every single mistake that was made in the past because Benedict option in a Dreyer sense is something that someone in America has always been trying to pull. And there are groups that formed in like the 80s, the 90s, long before maybe anybody listening to this was really concerned about what was going on in America. And they're all over the map religiously. Baptists, there's an Eastern Orthodox group, I think in Alaska, but I think they're all converts. So people have been trying this. So problems have been encountered before. You can, you can learn from all that. Breaking the game. And to my understanding, that means staying where you are first and getting a better perspective of that point. Uh, one of the failings of mass media or mass information is uh, you become disoriented by seeing too much. And Another way to say this, I guess you could say, is like uh, many people buy a lot of books, read a lot of books, and that's the pursuit of knowledge. But there's something to be said about circling around a few great texts repeatedly. So by getting that wider, longer perspective of the immediate present, which history always, always is going to give you, you are then able to take wise action in, in the present course. And that might mean being willing to die where you are because maybe that's the most awesome thing you could possibly do at the moment. And, and maybe that means finding a way to flee and help the weak and the poor uh, escape and live for a peaceful, quiet life. Have we been answering the question that really genesis this in the Discord, or do you want to go directly to that question a little bit still? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think we have. If we haven't, just let me know. Not a problem. I think that when people think about staying and potentially facing martyr, like direct martyrdom, one caution I have about that is that the early church has an entire category of people that most Christian communities, even Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, do not have proportionately, which is celibate men and women, even, you know, even and especially who are not clergy and not, not in any sense professionally religious, like a, like a Catholic nun would be. 
So celibacy is, is, happens much more often. There are relatively few conflicts over what happens to my children when I die in early martyrdom accounts. Now, there are notable exceptions, like in the story of Perpetua and Felicity. But the issue there is that if you are talking about martyrdom, okay, if your children are killed, that's the end of everything, right? So it is possible to expunge the church, right? So that martyrdom is not, the, the blood of the martyr of the martyrs is not the seed of the church, as it was according to, to Tertullian, if the church is simply extinguished, as it was in many places by things like Islamic conquest, where they make it impossible in many, many ways for your children to grow up Christian. Maybe you die and then they farm your children out to other people or they massively incentivize conversion or whatever. But I would be very careful about, you know, martyrdom as this sort of like heroic vision because the social and political circumstances of the early church vary widely from place to place. And they vary widely from us in that the backbone of American congregations of any denomination are families with children. And if they get your children, like you're dead or they take the children away from you, that's the end of everything, right? So I would be very careful about that because the, the analogies, the historical situations do not transfer perfectly. And there's something, there's, you also have much higher birth rates in antiquity. Yes, you have higher infant mortality, but you have much higher birth rates. So if they kill like seven of you, there are still three people in that family left over. That's not the case for most of us. So um, yeah. That, yeah. that's all yeah, stuff yeah. to think about. I mean, yeah. that, that onion of how, how, how we get through uh, the needle's eye of this present moment in any way, shape or form, Adam, I mean, I'll be frank with you. I, I think we're done. Except for the fact that there's these promises I cling to that say we aren't. Humanly speaking, I, I just don't know how any of us get out of this thing. They all, they all moved here 200 years ago because they wanted freedom of religion. And, and now here, here it is. <laughs> right? So, so what are you going to do? Um, well, again, I think also at the same time, our advocacy here is less about the ultimate retreat from society and more is about walking in bright daylight as the weird outsider. And being okay with that and recognizing that, yeah, right now in the middle of the Senate debate floor, you can't do that. Uh, you're going to get, you're going to get fired, you're going to get killed, you get whatever, right? That's a, that's where the war is. But right now there's all sorts of areas in the country where you can just set down and be that outsider. But again, like you said, if you do that, it has its own heroic quest. It has its own need for certain disciplines and preparations. Like you mentioned the itch in the third generation. I imagine the first generation is going to get an itch because they're coming out of something. I mean, the flesh pots of Egypt were called up for a reason, right? So you're, no matter what, it's not going to be a paradise on earth. You're not going to go found Eden. You're still going to have to deal with people with psychological struggles and frustrations and agendas. And, and then everything you do, you will expect three generations down to be a worse version of itself as you your blind spots become you know the thing that that eats the society from within. So one way I would say you're you're always building with the expectation that it's going to collapse, and it's that desire for reformation, which is where I agree with Dreyer, the desire to reform Christian community. I mean, here this Catholic calling for reformation. <laughs> I think that's a part of just the agenda of Christianity always that we're never in in static 
standing were always under assault and then reclaiming uh, land by hope, uh, you know, and that's very it's very broad. And I said it that way, I think, so that you know a non Christian might understand it. Um, so if we're talking about Western civilization, I, I don't like thinking about the West and saving the West. I just I'm just like let's just barrel through this and start something that works. But even so, that's going to only happen within the reality of history's examples that give us not exactly what's going to happen next, but the kind of black swan reality you don't know is going to happen next, yeah. and yet it does not usually go outside of a certain echo ring. There are certain turns of, of loop or uh, you know, swings, pendulums, whatever, that kind of come yeah. back and forth within this thing. Yeah, If that gobbledygook makes sense. You... <laughs> I, I, I want to I be clear that the, you know, I, I, I don't think that like the gospel will be extinguished from the earth. What I'm, ta- what I'm saying specifically is that I have children. My family has been in America for 14 generations I want it to be here for another 14 generations. So my concern is not that like the church, capital C, would just disappear, but that for my own land and my own family, I want the church to be here because it is possible for the church to, by and large, disappear from a place. Right. Right. I completely agree with this. And I think, but your native heart there, uh, what you're saying about, the future of your family based on the past of your family. I think that is a supreme minority experience thought position uh, among people. And it's, it's foreign enough that for many, they're going to have, they're going to say, what does that even mean? And I'll even say, I've heard it said, you know, uh, kind of a, uh, why bother right now? We don't know what's coming. Why not just kind of let it all be. So Mm -hmm. what you're claiming though, is that, our place in history still matters. Even if the world ends tomorrow, it's important to live as if the world's not going to end tomorrow, as if there is a future in which uh, whoever you believe is God would like to see man live well with each other, and we should work toward that. And I, I agree with your position, but I just I think it's a supreme minority, and I think it's a matter of heart, but not just like feeling. Like There's something there about, about where the will comes from. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that... I don't think that ancestors are accidental. I mean, I think that in the whole scheme of things, I am a blip and my responsibility is to at least to pass on to my children what was bequeathed to me by my ancestors. And I mean, they, they, didn't, they didn't really, they didn't come here for sort of Benedict option reasons. I, I don't have anybody on, on the Mayflower exactly they largely came as indentured servants, right? So they're sort of like temporary slaves. And then eventually they get their own land and whatever. But I, you know, I, I see that as therefore I have a, I have been entrusted with certain things from them, which it is my duty to preserve and extend. And so I, I think that, that, that viewpoint, I, I agree with you that that's unusual in the modern United States, but historically it's extremely normal. I think practically anywhere. And so, so I think that I I am commending that regardless of how long, you know, your ancestors have been in the United States, that your first impulse not be to, whether you think it's somewhere you've never been before, especially like another country, your first impulse not be to flee, to fix it there. That, that works for a certain amount of time. I mean, it's been working for the Missouri Synod for how long has the Missouri Synod been around? Going on 200 years, something like that. And now it's not quite working the way it used to. 
<laughs> you right, know, so right. there's always going to be a problem. There's always going to be difficulties. Why not deal with the ones that you know and understand rather than the ones that you, you know, move to Moldova. Okay. You don't, you know, you can be a Christian in this former Soviet country, but now you've got other problems. And um, yeah, I think, I think that there's a, there's a little bit of a lack of historical depth in Dreyer's book that causes him to be off on his recommendations for that, for that very reason. That's an interesting thread to chase further. However, I'm going to back up to something that's, uh, I think, I think a lot of our listeners will resonate with this. So we pinpoint that you have a certain native heart desire tied to your ancestry, tied to your future, the future of generations that is not normal amongst common kind of TV raised American society. Sure. But is normal historically it's it's the old normal okay so so someone who's the new normal right someone who's the new normal hears this and like okay like i totally get that that's the old normal and i totally get that that's better but i got no idea how to like have it now and that's that's the trick now as you were saying that though it did give me a thought i've been pushing into my ancestry a little bit recently and you know it gets pretty ugly fisk from my lineage like let's just hop skip past my grandpa and it's immediately really really ugly uh this family going to church it's a stunt and they are a power mongering uh new elitist in north dakota uh family of lawyers working their way up into the judicial system and one of them you know makes it to the supreme court of north dakota in like the my great grandpa's generation anyway so like it's like oh like i don't know that i want to carry on this name a little bit when i hear about these guys and then i think though listening to you talk though the real agenda for me next would be to go further back if I can and find that grandfather who said something that I want to carry on, who said, I'm here and I believe this. And, you know, that tickle there, yeah. if I could find that, that okay. might be then, oh, well, this is something that I have from further back to pass on. And I'll just say that when I found out that my middle name is McAdam, and when I found out that the, the, the family words for McAdam, the date 14th century, something like that, are in crucis Alice, in the cross of salvation. I mean, golly, to have that family name from that far back be about the salvation of Christ, uh, that did inspire me to have heart, I would say. So that uh, not, not to be overly pragmatic about building your heart back, but I, I think it's how do you get back from the new normal to the old normal? It's not just like hearing about it. <laughs> There's something yeah. more involved. Okay. I mean, I, I think that I think that what you're dealing with there is that you're looking for something ideologically salvageable. And that is not, that's not really what I'm saying. So I'm not saying, and I, and I think that this is a major misunderstanding of the ground of patriotism is that the issue with patriotism, which is directly connected to having a fatherland, a patria and having a pater, right? A a specific father is not, and Luther is really good on this in the large catechism on the fourth commandment. The issue here is not, that 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 man or that generation or or four generations back or whatever was ideologically totally in line with you like the vast majority of my ancestors on both sides were baptists i'm not a baptist except i mean i don't drink really so i guess that's right but i'm not a baptist I'm sorry though you baptize babies so you still don't yeah, count. I baptize like, that's babies. the only unifying factor so, man that is yeah. the only unifying <laughs> right factor. otherwise i'm basically yeah culturally baptist so yeah but the issue here is not finding ideology. Luther says, you know, even if, you know, your mother and father were 
even if they didn't exist, you would have to set up, it's a weird Luther thing. You'd have to set up water stone and honor them as mother and father. Because the issue here is sheer existence is such an enormous gift that the fact that you exist, the fact that you have a place, okay, that that is what is amazing and worthwhile. It's not that the people or even, I mean, I'm from Appalachia. We got decayed, you know, we got closed mills. We got we got strip mining. Like the issue here is not that you love a place or a people or a family because they are beautiful or amazing or you agree with everything. That 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 can't be the point. The gift here and the thing worth preserving and extending is the fact of sheerly being at all, right? And this is true both for one's parents or great-grandparents or ancestors of any kind. I'm, some of my ancestors I ideologically agree with in politically or religiously and some I do not. The the issue here is not that it, it's all great or that, you know, this is great and this is not. So let's suppress this, right? The The issue is that existing, being at all is its own gift. That's that. I mean, I love my father because he is my father before he does or says anything in the same sense that he loves me because I am his son before I do or say anything. And so that, that for me is the issue. It's not like, I don't have, I don't have to believe. And I've never liked when people have said America is the greatest country on earth. How do you know that? <laughs> and, and who cares if it is, is it, isn't something worthwhile because it's there? It does it have to be the best. I mean, the place that I grew up was not like the best place that's ever been. It's the place that I grew up. That's why I love it. So I think that this, this applies both to, you know, how you think about your ancestors and therefore also how you think about future generations as it does to place. And I think that one of the big issues with red state, blue state is that we have begun to think about all of life as if it's ideologically determined. And the vast majority, almost everything worthwhile that I've ever experienced has almost no ideological basis. And even certain things that I love about church where doctrine is, you know, its own form of ideology and it's necessary, obviously, a lot of things that I love about church really don't have to do with the doctrine specifically, you know, it, it, it's like a love for specific people that are there or, or a love for the place or a love for certain hymns, you know, so, and, and I don't love my children because they agree with me on everything, even if they do. Right. I, so that, I, I think that that's kind of a, that's kind of a key distinction. Like I don't, I don't have to go back in my ancestry and find X amazing dude who also happened to be a Lutheran, just like I am or, or, or had, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah. I guess it's not so much what I was suggesting as that to find some camaraderie, you know, and, and even in discovering what I would call the, the negative of, uh, of that one generation of, of yeah. fisks that that did so well in the world, and yet their families collapsed. I mean, kind of the family collapsed. Uh, in there, there is learning about familial patterns and and history, and you know, the way people talk and things like that. So you're always able to find a deeper understanding of your present self by looking at those uh, those ancestry patterns, history as well, you know, of the world and all that. So speaking of or tangenting from history of the world, when the world yeah. looks back and writes the history of America, uh, will red states matter? <laughs> well, the idea of a red state will matter. The concept of red state and blue state is fairly recent in that it is 
a way of thinking. It, it's a proxy for a lot of other things. The terminology comes from electoral maps displayed on TV, where in the presidential election specifically, right, just the presidential election, things are going to come up as red states if they go for Republicans and blue states if they go for Democrats. This is confusing, partly because red throughout the entirety of the 20th century denoted leftists, generally communists. And so, you know, like in Europe, the colors are generally either totally different or reversed, where the left wing party is red and then the right wing party is like in Germany, it's black or in Britain, it's blue, major right wing parties. So this is an American thing. And it's really about electoral maps. But the electoral maps are understood as a proxy for so much else. And the electoral map, therefore, unites Wyoming and Alabama and Alaska as reliable red states, and then also unites New yeah. Mexico with Vermont as blue states. So you saying it that way, it's like immediately clear to me why it's not useless, but it is. It's complete fabrication. <laughs> and then yeah. and then the yeah. purple concept's <laughs> even worse because right. it makes how we decide – whether or not we like one of two options, which nobody tends to really want to be the two options, how we decide right. on that defines everything about us forever. And th that's extreme. Right. That's a bit extreme. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's extreme. It's also, I mean, there's an extent to which, like when people say, oh, this or that state is turning purple or turning blue, things, notice that things almost never turn red. Um <laughs> <laughs> I had noticed that. I turn. had noticed that years ago. Yeah. It started to make me cry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's something's turning purple or turning blue. That that is really a proxy for America's obsession with race mostly, although not entirely. So it, it's it's mostly in the sense that Georgia's electoral changes recently or or closer votes or whatever or allegedly voted for Biden in 2020 is is really a proxy for usually Hispanic immigration, but in the case of Georgia, even migration of, you know, American-born Blacks from generally the North down back to the South, where maybe their great-grandparents actually came from to go to the North to work in factories. So what you get uh, is that mostly you get an obsession with demographics, especially racial demographics, as totally determinative of how life is or should be, which is partly the Democratic Party's, the National Democratic Party's electoral strategy. You know, immigration generally works in their favor. Most non-white groups of all kinds will vote heavily Democratic. American Blacks, almost entirely Democratic. And you get this really going throughout all of life, right? Like with the Chauvin trial, you had, okay, here are the jurors. I remember the OJ trial and the discussion of race there was really important. With the Chauvin jurors, you're even getting, however, like mixed race, right? So we're getting our racial classifications are becoming more important and fine-tuned, sort of like colonial Latin America. So you get this kind of this total obsession in everyday life with racial demographics. It doesn't entirely capture that, though, because I think there's a racial demographic that is reliably democratic at this point that people usually don't talk about, which are white liberals. So leftist whites, especially usually moving from the North into places like Virginia and North Carolina are going to change the electoral map, at least as reliably, if not more than anyone else. But it's generally red state, blue state, 
the the proxy here is that generally it's about racial demographics although and this is one of the chinks in the armor it doesn't that doesn't really explain why vermont is i think whiter than wyoming but is totally blue and wyoming is totally red so why but, is why is that? Can you explain that one? In yeah, a yeah. So this is why this is why I think that what red state blue state actually captures in some way is a sense that probably more real for most people than like the racial demographics of their zip code, which is going to have to do with redistricting and the sort of racial obsessions of our media and also our politicians. Generally, Democratic Party being more open about it than the GOP. Beyond those racial obsessions, there are actual what what is actually going on, among other things, is because the media is nationalized, political polarization is also nationalized. So New England is a really interesting example of this, and people don't really think about it because it's so reliably blue. I mean, New Hampshire being the sole exception, not being reliably blue in a presidential election necessarily. Okay. But New England is the home just historically of the folks who would eventually found the Republican party and is reliably Republican forever and ever and ever until relatively recent years. Right. So, I mean, in, you know, I mean, a a new Englander ran in 1988, Michael Dukakis, the only Swarthmore graduate to ever run for president, sad to say, horribly embarrassing. And in new England, he only won his home state of Massachusetts. Everyone else in New England voted for George H.W. Bush. So New England is totally reliably Republican for a very long time into the lifetime of almost everybody listening to this in national president, like in presidential elections. So what I think is what I think is going on is that you have a shift from the really traditional American way of thinking about politics was in what was called in the 19th century sections. That is, there are regions of the United States and the more the United States expands, the more sections there are gonna be. And those sections, because they have different climates and different ways of life, it's, they're, they're gonna have different political configurations. And so our national government, if you look at it, right, just the constitution, not to speak of anything preceding it, is really set up to manage sectional conflict well. Yeah. I mean, the Senate, for instance, does that really well. And you even see states voting as a unitary group, all the representatives voting as a unitary group in certain cases, maybe in cases of impeachment or in you know certain ways of conducting business. So it's all set up with the idea that if you live in a different part of the country, basically <laughs> your way of thinking about how life should be organized will be so radically different. And this is not just, although it is, about negotiating slavery between North and South at the founding of the country. It's also negotiating what the West or the mid-Atlantic states from New England, et cetera. And the idea that how you live in your place is gonna shape how you think is much more traditional. I think that red state, blue state is this realignment, I think going along with a mass media culture that if you live in a rural area, whether you're in Vermont or Wyoming or Alabama, you're going to listen to country music and you're going to like guns and that's going to affect your voting. Rather than that, 
you know, if you live in Vermont and it's rural and Alabama and it's rural, you really have not a lot in common, except maybe you know how to change your own, you know, oil in your car. Whereas the city guy in Alabama or in Vermont, such as it is, doesn't. But the sectional thing is much more important. And you, we are actually set up to deal with sectional conflict. I don't think we're set up, not formally anyway, to deal well with total ideological polarization. And I think it, it masks the fact that if you live in Wyoming, you need to worry a lot more about the federal government owning land, for instance. That's a much bigger day-to-day issue for you than it is in Vermont or Alabama. With the news comes division. So mm-hmm. a, new, a new idea comes in uh, and you have two people. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be two opinions. The odds of them being the same, you know, over the course of three or four pieces of news, increasingly yeah. there's going to be division. So yeah. the injection of new information into a community inevitably creates division. So yeah. the the reliance upon media as a form of pastime is a, is it like a yeah. an invitation to the polarization of everything in your life? Yeah. alone the federal government. So yeah, yeah I was listening. I was listening. Right. There's lots there. So uh, please. So, keep talking. Yeah. Cause I, I think, I think that the, the question of polarization, ideological polarization, it's not that ideology is evil, but it is that when ideology is all that you're aware of, you may not even be aware of your own interests. Whereas when life and news and media consumption and everything are shaped more locally, I think you're probably better aware of your interests. So just give you an example of this. The first serious attempt at secession from the union, I mean, there were suggestions before this, but the first serious attempt is what's called the Hartford Convention. That's Hartford, Connecticut, during the War of 1812, because New England which at that time is called the East with a capital E, New England realizes that they really don't have a dog in this fight. They don't have the same opposition to the British and to British encroachment on what was becoming the American West that the Mid-Atlantic, but especially the South and the burgeoning West had. So New England says, look, this is not a war that we want to fight. So they have a convention to discuss whether or not they'll secede from the Union. And some of them are so extreme in this that they're called blue light federalists because they would put out a blue light on the coast of New England to warn British ships so that they wouldn't, you know, run aground and be able to continue down the American coast Hmm. (laughs) in order to, you know, do things like ransack Maryland. So what you're dealing with is the idea that my, my sectional, this is not purely local, this is everything within you know, my state. And in New England, you're not talking about big areas. That's really a lot more important for how my politics are configured than the idea that abstractly I oppose the British or abstractly I support the French. Or So it's not like ideology is absent. I mean, they have America is a place that we've always had newspapers, right? But the, the issue is that not all the politics are designed to function around ideological issues. So um, a modern day kind of, you can see how much things change is that not only do we have the capacity to nationwide convince people and convince rulers of various kinds to make everyone wear a face mask in public. We also, and then, and then to also like get people sort of like psychotically opposed or much more often psychotically supportive 
of these mandates for everyone else. We also have the capacity to align Wyoming and Oklahoma and Alabama in opposition to just indefinite mask mandates. Whereas your places that are most ideologically consistent as governments on the left, like say Oregon or parts of New England, are going to keep those mask mandates in the case of Oregon, maybe indefinitely. So it really has nothing to do with where you live, what the climate is like, what you grow there, how people live, what the manners are, what the people are like. It has everything to do with how you and your officials, generally at the state level, react to nationally organized campaigns, either political or media. And life is organized that way, in the same sense that the media you consume is also similarly national and nationally targeted. So you're rural, so you you can shop at Tractor Supply and you listen to country music and you're you're urban and so you do this or you do that, right? So what you see in red state, blue state as a way of thinking is that everything becomes ideological, even my consumer choices, but especially my political choices because my politics are all arranged nationally. So nationally, nobody's going to talk about, hey, Bureau of Land Management owns tons of stuff in the West or here's what's good. Like, this is why Vermont doesn't have public billboards. People don't even know that stuff because even though it affects quality of life a lot that the government owns a bunch of land or there are no billboards in Vermont, nobody even knows or talks about these things that if you live there, that that matters a lot on a day-to-day basis. Who are your kings? Who do they pay tribute to? And why are you making where you buy your milk a matter of your religion? All of these are what ideology, which may just be Gnosticism, has been doing to us by the rule of global media. Welcome to A Brief History Power with two white guys. We still got a little bit of time here left to mm-hmm. go on mm-hmm. and deal with. Oh, I had it here a moment ago. I mean, you kind of touched on this uh, with your your last statement. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, what was America like before everything was ideological? I mean, you, you've hinted at that, but maybe that's where we are still in the conversation. Yeah. 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 No, that's... I mean, for one, politically, things just work differently. And our parties were not intended to be bearers of incredibly coherent ideologies. So the South is solidly democratic after the Civil War. It There was a lot more debate, right? This is something to note. You know, the, the South is much more politically up in the air before the Civil War. And then ideologically becomes obviously extremely aligned in favor of its own interests by virtue of going through the Civil War and then becomes the solid South and really generally remains the solid South down to this day, shifting from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party during the 70s, the 1970s. But the reason for that is that Southern politics were arranged around Southern interests. They weren't arranged around, hey, what does some Irish guy in New York who's also a Democrat think or care. Doesn't matter. I'm using political parties and political groups as a way to get my interests represented and dealt with. Right. When the national dialogue is usually stuck more on foreign interests, foreign issues, right? And so your sectional... Yeah, yeah. or or like a national thing, right? Mm -hmm. So like a, a, a Southern politician today will try to rise by, you know, or, or Southern legislatures have to pass like, you know, anti-trans women in sports bills. And that's fine. I, I totally don't oppose that. But you see how it really has relatively little to do with what is the average person doing in this town of 800 in rural Mississippi and how can his life get better? 
So the, the issue here is that when, when it, I, I don't think ideology necessarily is, is evil. I mean, I think, I think that the issue here is that when you arrange your life around ideological buttons that are being pressed by other people, that can be very evil because then you're not even dealing with things that could actually help you and your family or, or your church or whatever. And the, the point of talking about local or state politics is partly because those are levels at which you can generally still discuss things that impinge greatly on your daily life. Whereas nationally, I mean, to the extent that our parties aren't just sort of money laundering machines, they, 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 are, they are organized in order to conduct and to obsess over national media issues. And it's not like those are unreal. The problem is they are not generally as real as your school's mask mandate for children. Or, you know, and so being unaware of how to operate in local and state contexts or organizing like your state GOP around national issues is to some extent highly unproductive. And our government definitely at the national level is not set up to deal with it. Our government is not set up to deal with a situation that we're increasingly dealing with where not only the media and academia, but the enormous, not constitutionally mandated executive agencies, the judiciary is not reliably conservative. And then by virtue of electoral controls, the legislature is, in, is increasingly going to be monolithically leftist in many cases. Right. We're, not so, set up to, we're not set up to deal with that. We're set up to negotiate sectional conflict because that was the major problem throughout most of our history. Yeah. So as you've made the case before, we're set up for the looting phase. That's what we're set up for. And th that's what then the man on the ground is why we, I always go back to these more local pragmatic or practical on the ground questions you know yeah. how do i respond today to the fact that my government may not be here and that the kings who are coming in i have i have no choice over what their non-sectional foreign concerns are that they're going yeah. to try to impact my children and my life with yeah. and yeah so i don't know i don't know where do we go from that <laughs> The place that I'm going to go next week is looking into this really fascinating book. It, now, it's called How to Survive Economic Collapse. But what I'm interested in is, is not just his tactics, but also the fact that he's an Argentine. Because Argentina is like the United States. And the United States is currently like Argentina was about 100 years ago, where it is one of the world's leading economies due to a combination of a sort of decadent version of federal government organized somewhat like our own and combined with that continued deindustrialization and economic uncertainty it has turned into i mean in sort of investment terms it's a developing market even though it used to be a highly developed market right 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 so I want to look at that. Now, the book is from the early 2000s. I believe the guy's name, if people want to look at it, you know, they, they hear this coming. I believe if his last name is Ferrer, F-E-R-R-E-R. -R -E and the book, some of it is extremely practical. So it's about like, if you have high crime and really bad roads, how do you drive? Okay. But what I'm going to do is go through that book and kind of provide historical context for it. Because 
sort of like how there have been, you know, communities trying to get away and to fix things and to preserve some sort of set of beliefs and a way of life before in America and there are today. There have also been countries that have had a sort of <laughs> horrible, perfect storm of bad government, <laughs> um, horrendous economic decisions, hyperinflation, and very high private and public debt. But have before. they ever been as great a country as America, Dr. Kuntz? Right, right. Well, I mean, like, this is, I mean, this is kind of one thing about growing up where I did, and I don't want to bring it up too much because I know it's unusual for most of the listeners. So I don't want to alienate them unduly. But growing up where I grew up, you don't, you don't like think like, wow, this is the greatest, like everything is so amazing. <laughs> you know, so it's like, I don't know, growing up in essentially a developing market, America's economic decline doesn't hit me quite as hard because it was never, <laughs> you know, like that good. So, I mean, how bad can it really get? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. So, I mean, I'm not so sure it was ever that good for me and that I wasn't just being sold, you know, some whitewash the whole time. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it, it could it could have been. Yeah, it could have been. I mean, that that's the appeal of the Disney the Disney dream, right? It's like, it's Tomorrowland. Yeah. It's coming. See, here's a promise. And uh, yeah. yeah, Disney finding so, a way in is, is always man, part of the problem. But we still, yeah, got, so, we still got a good uh, 10 minutes here. So let's keep going. So I think that, I think that in the same way that if you, if you look at, if you look at Appalachia or you look at the rural South or you look at, you know, certain forgotten parts of the American West, you can see that the American dream was 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 fairly definitely a, specifically a middle class and a suburban dream. You can also see that a lot of things that are try, that people try to cover through saying red state or blue state, they might be proxies for race or they might be proxies for you know national presidential voting habits, but they mask a lot of other things. So they mask, for instance, that maybe not only the sectional, but even the ideological interests of somebody in rural Massachusetts resemble those of somebody in suburban Wyoming, to the extent that Wyoming has suburban areas, much more than red state, blue state does. Right, so right, I, right. I, I think that in addition to local or state government, there is the reality that we still have national communication and transportation systems. I mean, people throughout the United States are listening to this right now. Right. So as long as that's the case, then organizing ourselves in and around also shared ideological interests, regardless of how blue or red our state is, is productive. And I think especially encouraging, because something that I noticed traveling around the country is that even if the people are basically like identical, rural Indiana doesn't feel like rural Illinois or rural Michigan right now because rural Indiana doesn't live under the same everyday conditions that people in rural Illinois or rural Michigan do. And so the sort of like COVID psychosis that people live under just doesn't exist or never existed in certain places. And this doesn't have to do so much with whether in your area people follow or don't follow whatever the rules are, right? It also has to do with you live in Eastern Oregon and you have an extremely lively awareness that because your life is determined by Western Oregon, you have to live with and deal with things that if you just lived in Idaho or Montana, you wouldn't. And that affects people. So it's not, it, ideology is neither unreal nor necessarily evil. And I think it affects people in a, in a deep way that 
doesn't necessarily align with whether they drive a pickup truck or not. Is there a difference? Uh, you're going to say yes, so I don't want to ask it now. Is there a difference between ideology and theology? I, I, I don't know if there is. Not necessarily. I mean, I could, I could separate them like intellectually, right, right. like in the sense that ideology is usually used negatively. I'm not using it negatively necessarily. So you could say that, I mean, ideology, the set of things that you believe, the ideas that you believe to have reality and value and things like that, there isn't necessarily a difference between ideology and theology. I think theology is just a clearer, extremely honest version of ideology. Whereas in a lot of other things that are highly ideological, their proponents don't recognize the reality of things like worship and devotion right, and right. other components. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So I'm, I'm still trying to figure out, uh, you know, where the place of this word ideology is. Because of your statement that your repeated statement that people do not unify around it, and yet that seems to be the primary way we're all trying to unify most of the time mm-hmm. is around it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what does that mean? I mean, I only just picked up the the briefer course on psychology. I've got eight pages in, so you're gonna have to help me out a little bit here. <laughs> yeah, well, I I think that what I mean by they don't unify around it is that. There are so many other components to being human. I mentioned some of them that come up a lot in early American political discussion. So manners. Okay. Now that sounds like, you know, like you need to know like which spoon to use or you need to say please and thank you. And and that's part of it. But what they mean or what like de Tocqueville means when he talks about different sections of the United States in the 1830s and 40s is that um, people visit longer in rural places than in urban places. And they visit longer with each other and more frequently in the South than in the North. And he thinks that actually matters for how the people are and therefore how their politics are constructed or construed. So if you live in a place where people's first question when they meet you is, what do you do implied for a paycheck? That's gonna affect you and your life and also the nature of political discussion in a way that uh, is going to be different than if people, when they first meet you, try to figure out who you're related to. Hmm. And so that matters in a way that is not specifically or superficially and is not discussed by our media as being quote political or public. It feels random. Like people are just different here or they're different from me or I'm different from people in another place. So when everything is organized, you understand how much more power the media has when you don't know who you are or where you came from. And they're like, okay, here are the things that you should think about today. Right. And you either reject that. And then your focus is on not being that that's kind of like every, like, you know, MAGA mom on Twitter. She's got like an American flag and her profile pic and dyed blonde hair and really, really cares about stuff that you can never, you can never tell where these people live because they have no local or personal interests seemingly. And they're always on the internet talking about national political issues. Here's your diet of care about this today. Right, exactly. And that's going to be set by media (laughs) or education system. If you don't really have a life 
outside of these specifically ideological political issues. So, so okay, here's the thing. I, I'm just nuts. But So when did, like, <sighs> setting up a piece of metal and staring at it for long amounts of time and expecting it to act like an oracle to you, yeah. like, yeah. when did that stop being called idolatry? The problem, the one of the difficulties there is that the the nature of idolatry is is i think a little harder to spot amen <laughs> in a culturally protestant society than in a society that either is a different kind of christian where the idolatry is more straightforward or is just non-christian because there's something and i i was thinking about this in connection with manners okay is that before the so I've said many times that at the time of the Civil War, almost nobody is saying that the Civil War is about freeing the slaves. Almost nobody. There are people, those people who are consistently abolitionist from years and decades before the Civil War actually starts. The thing that if you read something from 1849 talking about abolitionists, it can be in the North, right? The things that they bring up are never about the specific political ideological argument. Okay, uh, the Declaration of Independence means this and that should govern how we understand the Constitution. So the Constitution's evil or we need to get rid of it or whatever. I mean, they do cover that. But one thing they always mention is how intense and sort of like a word that often comes up is crazy. The abolitionists are in their personal appearance because you're still dealing with a political culture that either you get words or you get personal presence. So it's a little easier to sort of like see and know and get a sense of people because the screens are not in existence. Yeah. Well, and you can fake a screen so much. You have no idea what Joe Biden's actually like. You got no clue. <laughs> oh, and it just doesn't matter. I could say Trump too. Like until you're in their face-to-face place, you right. just won't understand it. I, I heard right. a story once about Bill Clinton. Like you can hate that guy all you want. You meet him, you're going to love him because he'll just smooth you. And he does it. Right. It's like magical, right? So right. Uh, the TV can mask all sorts of things, uh, good and ill. Right. Um, and so, yeah. so I, I, think, I think that what's – What's going on here is that I th- I think that like if you you go you look at an abolitionist in the 1840s or 1850s almost it's it's general it's almost always going to be a northerner but the sectional thing is not really that important because almost no northerners were abolitionists like Abraham Lincoln included the person is almost always going to be not religious in 1850s America or he's going to be unitarian so kind of on the way out of religion and he's generally going to be really intense and, and talk a lot. What I think is interesting about this is that as to like sort of like personal presentation and willingness to like burn everything down for the sake of like a specific ideological point, abolitionists are much more like the American future 150 years later, more than that, than anyone else in 1850s America. And so I, I think that part of the the intensity of ideological devotion, and I can't tell where you're from because you don't really seem to have a life except in alignment with specific ideologies, is a function of the fact that it's not just that we, we're not as religious as we used to be, definitely true on both the right and the left, and in Vermont and Wyoming and Alabama. It's also that I don't really think we have lives like we used to, because part of the issue that people have as they see these abolitionists is like, like, 
like, who are you? Like, 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 who are, who are your people? Like where, what do, what do you do when you're not writing newspaper articles and lecturing people? I, I'm not saying that in a negative sense, like they're having public lectures. What are you, what are you doing? Like, like, who are you? Hmm. And there's a certain like rootlessness that is required to align the entirety of your life with ideology that is far more common today than it was then. And so I, I don't really find it surprising that people have begun to think about all of life, including their entire state in these sort of ideological red state, blue state terms. I see it more as an index of how ideological and kind of rootless and sad and irreligious modern America is rather than as an index that's going to actually tell me something all that insightful about the differences between Vermont and Wyoming. I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, because it's black, white thinking while having some value when you're doing like one plus one mm -hmm. uh, by and large mm -hmm. is insufficient for managing yeah. reality. Right. Just straight up. Right. Yeah. And one, one of our listeners has this, uh, this freedom index, which is this really awesome spreadsheet. Maybe we should, that uh, was incredible uh, with his, uh, with yeah. his permission, put it in the discord or something, but <laughs> that, that is a lot more helpful if you're just thinking about where maybe you want to live than a lot of other things, because he's, he's figuring out things like self-defense law, gun law, taxes, ease of incorporating stuff like that right, we'll see if and, we can get that put into mad yeah. mondays so if you are not yet a yeah. subscriber to mad mondays i gotta pitch it to you right now redfizz.com slash newsletter sign up and hopefully in this coming up uh monday edition we'll have a, a shared spreadsheet with all sorts of stuff about the variety uh state laws that affect you and every state and it's pretty impressive again we got to get permission from the gentleman but right. i'm sure um he's a lawyer who would love some uh some aid uh mcpherson law i think i'm um, that's not exactly what they're called but uh, nathan mcpherson he's out in idaho and you can go to him at beat yeah beat irs.org something like that um and he'll help you get <laughs> yeah. out of your trouble with the irs i mean i'll throw that his way right now and uh, i'm sure we'll be able to share that information publicly soon so some closing thoughts here for today yeah. So, I, I mean, I, th I think that one of the things to understand about place is that place should be judged at least as much in terms of its climate and its manners and your history or your capacity there to make a living there, to, to have a life there. Because one of the things that I hope this podcast does is enable your life where you are to be more fulfilling, more worthwhile, dare I say it, as a as a Lutheran happier than your life would be sort of in this, I think, hamster wheel of ideology, which is such a component of modern American political culture. And it used to be unusual that people would get extremely worked up and their entire daily life would be changed by a single political issue. And now it's, it's fairly normal and uh, families are divided over these things and act on those divisions. So, I hope that in kind of drilling down into what is what is what is a red state, what is a blue state, you have a better sense both of, you know, the different regions of America and, and how they really do differ, even if they vote the same way in a presidential election. But I think also of how you can possibly make a life even in a blue state or a or a purpling state in the years to come. It is difficult to underestimate the level of trauma done to human civilization by the advent of 
the television. I'll say that. My name's Jonathan Fisk. You're listening to A Brief History of Power with two white guys, and you know who the other guy is or you wouldn't be here. <laughs> 